The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Today is the day that the mouse eats the fox. Yes, uh, Disney spending $52 billion for many assets of uh, 21st Century Fox. And here to tell us more is Geetha Ranganathan, our senior media analyst for Bloomberg Economics, and Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Geetha, what has to go right in order for this merger to show that it is a smart deal, not just now when everyone is happy and stock prices are moving up, but in times when perhaps uh, there are not going to be so many hit movies. What kinds of synergies or combinations make this a potential success? Um, so, Pim, there are plenty of synergies because both of the companies are in such similar businesses. There are significant cost savings, obviously, on the TV and film production side uh, with all of the sports programming. Uh, but I think really for the, um, for, for the deal itself to be successful, there are two primary considerations. Number one is execution. Disney has an absolutely stellar record when it comes to acquiring assets and then integrating them. We've seen that time and time again with Pixar, with Marvel, with Lucasfilm. Um, Fox, of course, is going to be a little bit different. It's a much bigger asset, but uh, I'm confident they're going to do a great job in execution. I think the issue where, um, you know, they're not going to have as much control is going to be on the regulatory side, um, given all of the recent uncertainty with the Department of Justice blocking the Time Warner and the AT&T deal. So um, those are the two things that we are really looking at. So Tara, uh, come on in here exactly on that point. I mean, how big of a hurdle is this going to be to cross to actually get this deal done? I mean, it's funny because it used to be that uh, horizontal mergers like this, meaning that a company buying a competitor, were the kind that were most sort of fraught in the regulatory process. And now we're seeing AT&T Time Warner run into hurdles, which is a vertical merger, meaning they're not buying a competitor, they're buying an adjacent business. And that's facing all kinds of issues. So it seems like the sentiment has been, well, maybe this will have an easier shot, which just doesn't make sense when you look at history. So I think it could be really interesting to see how the government looks at this. I mean, I, I think they're going to have some issues on the sports side um sky tv perhaps that's uh, sky plc maybe that's a little bit easier now we'll see easier for fox to complete the deal because yes. that would be uh sort of what would happen before uh disney would acquire sky so concerns about uh being too a big fit of and a, proper yeah. being a fit and proper broadcaster and you know the scandals that fox has had uh disney is, is probably a more preferable buyer in that case Geetha, what does the competition make of all this? I mean, it's not as if they're going to sit idly by while uh, Bob Iger tries to combine two huge companies. 
Yeah, I mean, this move itself has kind of been um, widely viewed as, um, you know, creating a Netflix killer. Now, I'm not really sure whether they're actually going to be able to do that. Um, Netflix is already far ahead. Um, so, you know, they it, it's going to obviously take some time for Disney to, to ramp up its presence uh, in the streaming world. But I think the bigger question is going to be what happens to all of the smaller media companies? What happens to a CBS, a Viacom, all of these names uh, now in play uh, with Disney becoming such a dominant force in the media world? I mean, I, I think CBS is going to be really interesting to watch. We just did a gadfly piece this week on the three different sort of logical deal options that they have on the table now. And I think Sherry Redstone could look at a Viacom merger again, which is their other property that they control. Um, I don't know how much sense that makes with Viacom going through such a tough turnaround. But the other ideas are Verizon. Verizon could copy AT&T once we get a better sense of how this trial is going to go over the Time Warner deal. Uh, they would you know, be adding content in the same way that AT&T is doing with Time Warner. Or there's Lionsgate, which has John Malone involved, a dealmaker, obviously. Um, I make I think it makes sense that Lionsgate, the film studio, would get rolled up into something at some point or buy other things. They bought stars not all that long ago. So I think CBS not having a film studio and clearly Disney seeing a lot of value in film studios buying Foxes and seeing how Netflix has had so much success on the, on the movie side as well. I think it only makes sense that CBS could look at something like that next. I'm going to throw something crazy out, Tara. Would the bigger and improved Disney uh, plus Fox be interested in buying Netflix? Roll them up. Make some behemoth. It's interesting. I mean, I always thought that Disney would be a logical buyer for Netflix. It, it could even solve Disney's succession question, obviously. But I, I think now with this deal, they're kind of going up against Netflix and they're trying to take uh, more control of Hulu. So I think it depends what happens with Hulu. Does Comcast fight? Disney, if Disney tries to take full control of it and try to break that up and take it themselves, or if, if Disney does keep it, I think they'd be more focused on the streaming services that they're keeping rather than going after Netflix. Geetha, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the um, factors is also going to be international. So Disney, by buying um, Star India, um, gets a significant exposure internationally. Now, Star India actually has a very big streaming presence through its app there, which is called Hotstar, which is miles ahead of Netflix. So Netflix is still kind of trying to gain a foothold in the Indian streaming market, for instance. Disney, through this Hotstar app, is already going to be miles ahead. Uh, so internationally, they've, they've, they're probably already a little bit ahead of the game there. The problem is really going to be in the domestic market. And as Tara pointed out, um, you know, we're going to have to see what happens with Hulu. They have, I mean, the scale that they have there is absolutely not comparable to Netflix's at all. It's only about 16 million subs or so. Um, so we'll have to see how uh, that, that plays out with Comcast once their consent decree ends sometime next year. Well, thanks to both of you for breaking this down. We will be talking more about that throughout the day. The fact that Disney is indeed uh, buying parts of Fox for $52 billion. Gita Ranganathan, senior media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, as well as Tara LaChapelle, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist who covers all things tech and deals and has been following this for quite a while. Really, the big question now has to do with Netflix. How will they respond? This is Bloomberg.
Strong jobs data. Well, it may falter, according to our next guest. Danielle DiMartino Booth is the founder of Money Strong and a Bloomberg profit, and she joins us here in our 1130 studio. Danielle, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. What do you mean by this strong demand in jobs may actually falter? You don't think that the job, the hiring spree is going to continue? I think that the hiring spree for skilled workers is certainly going to continue. Um, But by the same token, I don't think that people are paying near enough attention to some of the distress um, signals emanating from the restaurant industry right now. Uh, Restaurants followed brick-and-mortar retail into the abyss of overexpansion, and now they're starting to shrink that footprint. If you look at the current economic recovery, as long as it has been going on, the main hiring sector has been in these restaurants, restaurant, leisure, entertainment. They've all overexpanded. Danielle, you've been uh, phenomenal over the decades of predicting the early signs of a problem, certainly leading up to the uh, housing boom and bust that we saw lead to the 2008 failure of Lehman Brothers. And I'm just wondering, right now we see a dramatic consensus around global synchronized growth, a healthy consumer, everything is hunky-dory. And yet consumer debt levels are rising if you strip out mortgages, rising to record levels. Mm-hmm. Does this concern you? Is this a warning sign? Are you seeing rising delinquencies that are also a warning sign? It, I absolutely am. Consider something. We have seen 23 back-to-back months of inflation-adjusted credit card spending growth outpace that of incomes, and the gap between the two is widening. Credit card delinquencies are going up. Major banks are setting aside loss provisions at a faster clip. Citigroup actually expressed surprise at how quickly they're having to build up their loss provisions. And we're seeing a continuation, a very quiet continuation of subprime auto delinquencies and the beginnings of FHA mortgage delinquencies tick up from 09 and 10. So uh, FHA is the one agency that allows uh, allows borrowers, home buyers to put down much less for their down payment. It's the right? only 3% game in town. And it was really the only open mortgage entity in the immediate years following the housing crisis where people could go and, and put very little down to buy a home. Do you feel like policymakers... Uh, sufficiently recognize the increase in fixed costs that a lot of consumers are facing. I mean, I was looking at a Moody's report on consumer asset-backed securitizations that they put out yesterday. As the share of renters paying more than 50% of their incomes toward rent climbed to almost 26% in 2015 from 24.1% in 2007, home ownership slumped toward a 50-year low Meanwhile, health insurance costs jumped 32% faster than a 12% increase in in workers' wages in five years. These are astounding statistics. Uh, We just had the CPI report come out that policymakers perceive as being benign. How could they see it any other way if if rents inside the CPI are only 8% of the index? And yet, they are at least a third, if not 50%, of a given household's balance sheet. They're running upwards of 4%. If you think back to the peak of the housing boom, that was what home price appreciation was doing at the time. But right now, home ownership and renting are more prohibitively expensive than they've ever been. And no, I don't think this is on the Federal Reserve's radar screen.
I just want to go through some items that people may actually purchase, such as gasoline, right? Gasoline prices, they are up. We're seeing about $2.50 a gallon for a national average. That compares to $2.21 same time last year. So that's an increase. Uh, we've also been speaking, as you have, about the, the delinquency for subprime auto loans. And we're talking about a figure that is about 10% of all of those loans are at least 90 days or greater uh, delinquent. What happens then if the Federal Reserve actually goes ahead and raises interest rates in 2018 three times and indeed even four times as many economists say that they're going to do? Well, this is, uh, we've read this book before and we actually know how it ends, the Fed will always over-tighten into late-cycle signs. And right now, we could possibly see a 4% handle coming on GDP, and it is going to be the biggest head fake, and the Fed is going to end up chasing that head fake and over-tightening if Powell is not astute to the fact that still waters run deep. So underneath the, the biggest natural disaster year in how long? 2017? Of course building materials have gone through the roof. Of course there were two good years of, 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 of car sales. All of this rebuilding effort has no precedent. You can't compare three hurricanes and two massive wildfires to Hurricane Katrina. It doesn't work. But that's the only thing in the Fed's models. I, just to push back a little bit, we're not seeing inflation pick up. We're not seeing some of the other signs of a late stage in the credit cycle. Investors, while they have uh, flown into the riskiest assets, they have shown some discretion this year. You are seeing some potholes in credit markets, some uh, losers amid the froth. So, you know, what are you looking at when somebody says to you, look, yes, all that understood, still in the scheme of things, consumer debt relative to GDP isn't necessarily at a record high. We aren't seeing the same kinds of default rates as you would leading up to a problem. What do you say to them? I think that the Fed has left the PPI for dead at its peril. We saw the that producer prices came out at a six-year high, and it was it was completely wholesale disregarded after the CPI came out by policymakers. A lot of that was gasoline, right? I mean, the gas. I think about two-thirds of the jump in November were gasoline-related. It was up more than 15%. But if you look at transportation, if you look Correct. at manufacturing, if, if, if you look at anything related to the supply chain disruption, which is unprecedented following these natural disasters, and you listen to every... You can look at 10 surveys. This is a, my upcoming Bloomberg View column. You can look at 10 regional manufacturing surveys, and all of the managers are complaining about the fact that their prices have gone through the roof. They're actually having to leverage up to cover them if they can't pass along these price increases, if they don't have pricing power. It's building in the pipeline. It's, it exists. So what do you think the Fed should do next year? I think the Fed is in a very difficult place. I really do. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm hoping that there are some eagle-eyed staffers who can look through this supply chain disruption, maybe hike in March, maybe, but they really do need to step back and study the household sector and figure out where inflation's really going to be after all of these natural disasters work their way through the data, because at the end of it, you will have millions of of households who remain devastated by these natural disasters and don't have the wherewithal financially to rebuild and replace all of these assets. They will add on to the existing, the pre-existing de defaults and delinquencies that we have seen already in the household sector before Hurricane Harvey made landfall. 
Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much. Always a pleasure speaking with you. She is founder of Money Strong, a Bloomberg profit. Also, for nine years, she was the aide, direct advisor to Fed President Fisher. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Federal Communications Commission is currently meeting. They are widely expected to reverse net neutrality rules that were instated during former President Obama's reign. Here to talk about what the implications are uh, is Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg News. Jerry, it's almost a foregone conclusion that this committee will indeed vote to reverse net neutrality rules. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the hearing's happening right now as we speak, but it, it is pretty much, um, you know, on along party lines and the Republican um, FCC's uh, commissioners have the majority. So they're going to, um, you know, they've made it pretty clear that they're going to vote to uh, remove these rules. So, Jerry, I've seen a couple of polls and it looks like the majority of Americans polled are not for rolling back some of these net neutrality rules. Uh, the argument from the industry is that the big broadband behemoths would invest more in their infrastructure if they knew that they could earn more from it. Can you lay out both sides and uh, and, and sort of why this is happening now? Yeah, I mean, the um, the Internet service providers, we're talking about companies um, like Comcast and Verizon. Uh, that's the crux of their argument, that if there's uh, extra regulations on how they uh, reg- how they manage their internet service, then that um, you know that make gives them less incentive to invest in their networks. Um, you know there is a, some skepticism about that argument. Um, Craig Moffat, who's probably one of the more respected uh, analysts in the in the industry, uh, you know he said there's a lot other there's a lot more factors that go into the decision of whether a Comcast or a Verizon invests in their broadband network than just whether there's uh, net neutrality rules. Uh, I mean, one key thing about the you know the future of these companies, um, Comcast in particular, uh, their video service is declining, and so the future of their business is selling you internet service, and they do not want the government to have any ability to tell them how much they can charge you for internet service, which is what these rules uh, do. And that that's really the, the bigger fear. It'd be very, very surprising to see Comcast or Verizon or AT&T slow down people's web traffic or block certain web traffic. The big concern for these companies and their investors is can the government have the ability to tell them, you know, how much you charge for broadband? Because that's really where their future profits are going to be. Jerry, have we seen this before in the wireless industry with, uh, I guess it's what called zero rating? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that's happening. I mean, the wireless side of internet service has sort of been overlooked in this whole debate. It's really been more about um, the high-speed internet that you use on your desktop computer uh, and your Wi-Fi at home. Desktop computer? Sure. Well, that's an old... That, that, I can't remember. What is that again? No, just... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, it, but wireless is, I mean, that's something that you're seeing the wireless companies do is uh, zero rating is an industry term for saying we are not, for example, if you want to watch Netflix on um on your phone through a wireless network, uh, that wireless provider would not count that uh, data usage towards the the limit that you have. I mean, some people have unlimited data usage. In the I think T-Mobile did this with Facebook and Facebook Messenger. There's free been, a- they said, you know, free access to that. That was That's just one example. There's a few examples of this where, you know, they say this won't count. Uh, this particular service won't count towards your, your data cap. And, and that's uh, controversial because then you're sort of, in some ways, these wireless providers can pick winners and losers. So, Jerry, I guess if you said worst case scenario, uh, what happens if all of these Internet providers jack up their prices sky high? And if anybody wants to get on the World Wide Web, uh, they need to pay them. The flip side to that is these companies are going to be judicious about how much they raise rates because they don't want to ignite a backlash that ends up creating them and and, and sort of labeling them as utilities, right? I mean, isn't this sort of the push-pull that people are looking for? Right. I mean, I think the um, you know the internet providers are going to be very, very careful about doing this sort of thing. I, I'd be very surprised if in the near future, if these rules get rolled back and there's going to be a probably a prolonged court battle over this regardless uh, that they did anything in terms of blocking or slowing traffic. And the other thing is, you know, this is really more about these smaller startups that need uh, access to the internet and not so much some of these big companies like Netflix that are are so huge that this doesn't really affect them as much anymore. You said that there are probably going to be lawsuits. Could that end up preventing a reverse of the net neutrality rules altogether? I think it, it's, you know, you talk to experts and, and they would argue that this is likely going to see legal challenges in the future, regardless of uh, how today's hearing turns out. So this is something that's been tied up in the courts for several years prior to this. And, and I'd be very surprised if it doesn't stay that way. Well, I'm just wondering if this could lead to specific add-on charges if you want to go to specific websites. So if you'd like to go to a website that is owned by AT&T and you happen to be an AT&T wireless customer, great. They'll let you do that along with your plan. The data that is used there is not going to be counted against you. But if you want to go to a competitor's website, or indeed if you actually are a content provider, which AT&T is seeking to become, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they already are really with the Dish Network to a certain extent. But if you want content from a competing company, maybe they'll slap on a $5 a month charge or they'll make it more expensive or prohibitive, or the website could charge directly for that access. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be less obvious to the consumer initially uh, as far as how much you're paying. I think this is more about a streaming service like Netflix or an internet, uh, a YouTube, and whether they would have to pay extra in order to make sure that their content reaches your home unimpeded and whether they would have to pay an internet provider to do that. Um, but, you know, I think the, the bigger question is also just um, whether these Internet providers, um, they just don't want the government looking over their shoulder. They don't want the government telling them how much they can charge Internet service. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Jerry Smith, our media reporter for Bloomberg. He'll be following that uh, FCC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission uh, decision. That'll be coming shortly on net neutrality.
We have talked a lot about the GOP tax overhaul plowing toward passage, and yet two GOP senators just slammed the fact that the tax overhaul included cuts for the rich. We're talking about Susan Collins of Maine and Marco Rubia of Florida. Florida. Here to talk a little bit about what this means for the passage of the bill is Terry Sullivan, partner and senior Republican strategist at Firehouse Strategies in Washington, D.C., also the former campaign manager for Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. Terry, thank you so much for joining us. I'm wondering, how should we view the dissent that we're hearing out of individual members of the Senate, Republican senators. Is this a bargaining chip that you're basically seeing in real time? Or is this real opposition that could end up blocking the passage of the bill? Well, I think it's still a, a, a bill in progress. And that, uh, you know, until there's, until there's something final, um, it's all negotiation. And uh, sometimes making sausage isn't pretty, um, even if the end uh, and result is, is going to be what we want. Um, so I think there's, there's still a lot of negotiating going on. And I think that's an important part of the process, um, that there is no done deal. And this kind of flies in the face of, of the Democrats' argument that this was ramrodded through. This is, you know, there's real debate about what this, uh, what's the details of this bill uh, look like. But you just said, I'm just trying to understand this. You said that the bill has yet to be completed. We don't know many of the details of the bill. If this is such a significant piece of legislation, why would the details be released and then only have perhaps five days in order to analyze this without vigorous debate from public, uh, with public input uh, to craft the bill in the first place? How does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, look, it, part of it is the, the hyper-politicization of everything now in that, look, the, the senators that, you know, we elected um, uh, as Americans are, are there, you know, hammering out a bill on the, on the Senate side and the, the uh, House members on the House side. And, you know, that doesn't mean that every single one of us has to be fully informed of every step of the process along the way. Um, it's concerning if they don't have the information, as in some cases in the past. But clearly, the, uh, the uh, legislators are, have the information and are working through this. Um, and so uh, it's covered like a horse race, just like a political campaign would be. But, but this, is, this is the process of give and take. And, and what they're trying to do is, is find a tax reform bill that uh, benefits all Americans. Terry, I think um, right now one sort of drumbeat in the backdrop is the fact that if the GOP doesn't get something done by year end, that the landscape could potentially change next year, given the fact that Alabama new has a new senator who is a Democrat. Do you think that that could potentially either uh, throw a wrench in the works if there is no bill passed by year end or if this is what's accelerating the talks right now? Well, I, you know, I think that, uh, yes, I mean, look, there's going to be one. Clearly, everything is, has come down to very party line votes. Um, and the Democrats are not going to support tax reform or health care reform or any of these uh, Republican proposals. Uh, so the Republicans need the votes to do it. And, and that uh, having one fewer vote is certainly going to make it tougher. Um, so whenever, uh, whenever uh, Jones is sworn in, it, uh, you know, that's, that is one fewer vote for any of these pieces of legislation to get through. And just talking about uh, Alabama Democratic Senator Doug Jones, who just uh, won the election, the special election, I'm just wondering, for the GOP generally, 
What has the shakeout been like? I mean, we've seen reports from infighting among members of the GOP, people sort of soul searching what this means about President Trump uh, as the head of the Republican Party. What's your take on this? You know, I think it uh, you, you can't uh, you can't underestimate the fact that there is there are some real divides within the Republican Party right now. Um, but in part of it has to do with the fact that the Republican Party is so big and so strong compared to the Democrat Party in that control, you know, the House, the Senate, the executive branch, the majority of state legislators, the majority of governors, mansions. I mean, the Republican Party really is a dominant national party. And therefore, once you get to this side, you're going to size, you're going to have factions within it. Well, but hold on um, a second, because there also is this fear that we have heard reported. And perhaps this isn't true. You can you can dispel us of this. Um, But there's a sort of feeling that the Republicans currently, yes, they are very big and they're failing to get certain things done, even though they have all this power. Right. I I do do not disagree with that. I'm not going to argue that point at all. Um, And uh, look, they've they've run for uh, their party uh, has run for a lot of years on, you know, repealing Obamacare and uh, tax reform. And so voters are expecting them to actually get something done. And uh, so I don't I don't disagree with your premise at all. Just quickly, uh, you know, Josh Holmes, who was the former uh, chief of staff of Mitch McConnell uh, and a political advisor, he said that the the victory in Alabama of Doug Jones unmasked Steve Bannon's incompetence. Do you believe that? Uh, No, I don't believe that at all. Steve Bannon's incompetence was unmasked years ago when he ran a uh, Biosphere 2 program in the Arizona desert to seclude people from the outside world for, you know, months at a time. Look, he's not, nor has he ever been a political strategist. Um, No one prior to Donald Trump has ever paid the man for his political advice. So, you know, he elevated himself, but with his White House position, he came into the Trump campaign in the final three, four months. Uh, You know, the media loves a Darth Vader. Um, He is one uh, gruesome looking Darth Vader. We got to, Terry, we're going to have to leave it there. We got to run. I want to appreciate your appearance. Uh, Terry Sullivan, partner at Firehouse Strategies and a senior Republican strategist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.